for August 27th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 217, Highway to the Danger Drone. To the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. Matt Rather, your host, is back at the bleeding edge of America, Los Angeles, Woo-hoo. California. After uh, two months out of the country, um, my passport got stamped and I'm back in the, the good old U.S. of A. Um, thank Matt, you the, for- con- the country did not get better while you were gone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Worse. I little, hate to break it to you, man. I, uh, yeah, uh, well. They opened a Microsoft store. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and a, a Samsung store in Australia I was reading on the internet that looks just like an Apple store. Probably hey, yo. Oh, welcome to your tech news podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> overthinking at tech news. Um, no, uh, so it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be back uh, for show producer Mark Lee and show host Peter Fenzel. Thank you very much for uh, doing a whole bunch of great shows while I was away. It was uh, it was a great pleasure for me to listen to and enjoy the shows as a subscriber um, and without having to do any work whatsoever. Uh, so uh, you guys, you guys kicked ass. Thanks. Oh, it was a great pleasure. I know that now I've been – we have to get back in line. So I have to sort of shake off that addiction to pure power that just seized my entire body. I would just like bathe in just a tub of gold after every podcast to just revel in the glory and, 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 and uh, yeah. privilege that it afforded me. Well, yeah, hopefully Scrooge McDuck style and not like Viserys Targaryen style. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. So while, while Pete was bathing in gold, I was – you know, uncompressing the audio files and then uploading them onto the site. It's really glamorous stuff. Really it's, glamorous. Yeah, doing the doing the post production is is uh, is it's the unsung the unsung hero of the podcast. Oh, it's uh, literally making sausage. So let me uh, let me um, let me sing you, uh, Markley, 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 Markley. There, Markley, 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 Markley. Um, the uh, you've been sung now, Mark. You're a sung oh. hero. Oh, um, thanks, man. The, the podcast. So, um, wow, the world seems to be uh, going straight down uh, down the tubes, or at least uh, a number of really remarkable people uh, have passed on. Um, one within minutes of recording the podcast last uh, last week, uh, we got the news that uh, Tony Scott. Uh, had ended his life. And um, uh, without going too much into it or getting too macabre into the details of it, uh, we would be irresponsible as a pop culture podcast if we didn't acknowledge that we really loved many of the man's movies. So, uh, panel, your question today is, uh, what is your favorite character from a Tony Scott Tony Scott movie. I was going to suggest favorite movie, but but before the show, Fenzel suggested that favorite character would be a nice uh, sort of twist on this, and there there were a number of them. So, Pete, uh, because you're first in the alphabet, and because you are still coming down off of the hangover of your awesome power of hosting the Overthinking It podcast, <laughs> uh, and because you suggested the uh, interesting twist that makes it not just the Thinking It podcast, but the Overthinking It podcast, uh, why don't you go first? All right, I will. I was actually trying to confirm something. Uh, about to make sure that I didn't get the name of a movie wrong, and I think I might, I might actually be wrong on my first choice. Uh, so I'm going to have to back up to my second choice. Basically, what I'm trying to determine. So Tony Scott, and I hope that I don't ruin this for everybody, uh, but Tony Scott actually directed uh, Beverly Hills Cop Two, uh, which is an amazing movie, um, really, really great. And I, I, I have a huge thing for the character of Surge played by Bronson Pinchot in the Beverly Hills Cop movies. But I don't think that Surge is in Beverly Hills Cop 2. I think he's in Beverly Hills Cop 1 and Beverly Hills Cop 3. And uh, Tony Scott, in fact, probably rightfully so, thought that he was perhaps a little bit too silly for Beverly Hills Cop 2. And so dispatched Which was him. The gritty, that was him. the gritty reboot of Beverly Hills yeah, Cop. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think probably the best Beverly Hills Cop movie overall. 
all, I suspect. <laughs> um, so, so I do want to go. I want to go with something that doesn't has sort of a a panache, and I just I just have an image in my head uh, that, I, that I mean I know there are a lot of of really stirring images in, in Tony Scott movies, but I'm going to go to the man responsible for one of the lesser no lesser appreciated but more awesome images in the Tony Scott movie, and I'm going to go with the character of Jimmy Dix, played by Damon Wayans in the last Boy Scout. Wow. Uh, for throwing the the exploding football, uh, this wonderful uh, you know crime crime detective slash pro football scandal drama movie. Uh, I remember when I was really young seeing previews for it. Um, I mean, it came out in 1991, so I was like 11 when it came out, and and I didn't, I wasn't the kind of guy who would go and watch like R-rated movies as as a younger guy. And I just remember thinking, wow, like that movie looks amazing. Like that's the kind of amazing movie you get to watch when you grow up. You get to watch <laughs> the last Boy Scout. Um, uh, I never really entirely understood what it was about, and now that I've seen it, I still don't necessarily know what it's about. Uh, no, I do. It's it's a it's a crime thing. It's pretty cool, but I do think that that icon of Damon Wayans throwing the football that explodes is something that really tickles me, and and, and I appreciate it. It's it's a product of vision. So I'm going to lay Jimmy Dix on the line right there. Excellent, the um, Pete. I I just have to say, uh, you getting names wrong. Uh, you have nothing on me in terms of getting names wrong because the last time I was on the podcast I got not one but two very prominent uh, names wrong the name of a famous British Olympian and the name of a uh, uh, the actress who played Seven of Nine on the podcast <laughs> so I was 0 for 2 in one uh, in one podcast so you know if it's Bronson Pinchot it's Bronson Pinchot I say you just ride that mistake out into the into the sunset no, I, I just confirmed on INDB that he appears in two movies ten years apart, 1984's <laughs> Beverly Hills Cup and 1994's Beverly Hills Cup 3, <laughs> but not, in fact, in uh, 1990, 1987's Beverly Hills Cup 2. I got, so. I got to say, I forget a lot of Beverly Hills Cop 3, so uh, do you know if they address his age, why he's aged ten years in the interim, or, uh, <laughs> you know... Uh- I definitely think there's a sort of like, I haven't been around here in a while kind of feel to it. But no, I don't. Eddie Murphy is a pretty well-preserved fellow, so I don't think they really have to deal with that too much. Sure, yeah, I, I guess not. It's not like the, like the Lethal Weapon movies where you actually have to address explicitly the characters getting older, if only because their kids get old. Uh, or, uh, 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 yeah, the, the family that right, has kids, that yeah. they get older. that grow up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm sure it's referenced at least sometime. It's been a long time since I dug out Beverly Hills Cop 3, uh, and well, I don't feel uh, yeah. it's compelled to watch it. Uh, directed by, the, uh, by John Landis, of course, the, the <laughs> illustrious Landis. Um, but yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, excellent. Mark Lee, you're next in the alphabet. <laughs> okay, I'm going with uh, Walter Garber, and that would be Denzel Washington's character from The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 which is far from Tony Scott's best movie. In fact, a lot of people didn't think it was that great of a movie, period, much less that of the Tony Scott oeuvre. Um, but here's why I like this movie. Um, it's mostly just because of my uh, endless, uh, deep fascination and love of the New York City subway system, which is uh, oddly reminiscent of that of, uh, apparently, autistic children really love the subway. They love to ride it. They love the intricacy of the system and the map and the tunnels and all the moving parts of it. Um, And I appreciate all those things. Uh, To my knowledge, I'm not autistic, um, nor do I have Asperger's syndrome. Um, But I have that sort of love and appreciation for the New York City subway system. And uh, Tony Scott apparently shared that love and appreciation of the New York City subway by uh, working very closely with the MTA, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, uh, to make the movie. He showed a lot of attention to detail to making and use actual subway cars instead of replicas on Hollywood stage sets. And um, cast, uh, of course, the, you know, the, the hero of this movie, uh, Walter Garber, was a, uh, a, a motorman. Right? Hmm. That, was his, that was his title. He was the one who drove the trains. He literally moves the city and he saved the city. In this and this is, this is a true story. Um, what, which part is a true story? Oh, Pelham 1, 2, 3? Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3? Oh, no, 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 no. It's, oh. not, it's not based on a true story. Oh, okay. Um, Never mind then. <laughs> I mean, just, just as a quick side note, the original Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3, which was either in the 70s or the 80s, was um, you know, obviously borrowing a lot from the air of or the, the, the feeling at the time of the law, sense of lawlessness in the New York City subway system. Oh. Um, and so that's really emblematic of a certain period where crime and uh, sort of the mechanical malfunctions on the, on, on, on the subways uh, was sort of a more common occurrence rather than uh, much less so than it is now. Which yeah, which more, is sort of orderly and, and uh, well-running uh, subway system. 
Yeah, this that's the era of Death Wish and the Warriors. Yes, right? yes. Like, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Which are two great movies about the subway. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. About the yeah. subway not working is really what yeah. those movies. Yeah, so the subway, the subway works here. Uh, Walter Garber is a big part of what makes it work. Tony Scott, like, sort of, you know, pays a sort of tribute of it, of the system working well. Um, well, at the same time, of course, you know, the, the portraying a terrorist attack on it, but um, yeah. I like that movie. Uh, most people didn't, but uh, uh, yeah, Tony, Tony Scott, master director and closet transit nerd. <laughs> well, he did Unstoppable too, which was right. great. Yeah, I really <laughs> great. It was really no, pretty, great. Listening? Great. No, I, I sorry. I mean, it, this is the Overthinking Podcast. We do not cast dispersions on the things, uh, the things that that we like. Um, <laughs> We, I mean, that's like that's 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 in the manifesto of the site that like we are not demeaned by the the we are not demeaned by the things that we like, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. See, so you stop a train. Let's. That's. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't do it. I could not stop a train. So you're you're right. Um, all right. Uh, I think I'm going last. I want to go with uh, maybe a more obvious choice, but I would like to go with uh, Nathan D. Muir. Uh, the Robert Redford character from Spy Game, and Spy, Ooh. yeah, mm-hmm. Spy Game's a movie I love, right? Um, and uh, and I and can watch again and again, and and it's a movie that for a little while there they were showing on TV uh, pretty frequently, and and it was one of those movies where every time I saw it and it came on, I sort of had to stop whatever I was doing that afternoon or evening and watch Spy Game until the end, even if it was on you know TBS and was uh, interrupted by you know twenty minutes of commercials um, periodically. I just had to to sit through and you know. Um, see Robert Redford, spoiler alert, you know, coast out of the CIA in his, uh, in his sports car and see Brad Pitt look across the, uh, from one helicopter to the other and see that he and his love interest had both been rescued from Chinese prison. Um, <laughs> You're really hitting all the bases. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, absolutely. I had to see those, those story arcs wrap up and I, I, you know, I like I like the Robert Redford character in this movie because um, he's just he's sort of an unstoppable force, much like a train, you know, barreling towards a collision at, at uh, uh, you know, what many dozens of miles an hour. Um, the uh, the the second that he learns uh, about the Brad Pitt um, thing or, or the second that he decides that he's going to uh help out and once he figures out what all the uh what all the angles are um it, he does nothing you know that does not have the sort of ulterior motive of of helping get brad pitt out of uh out of prison and it's also um it, you know it's also like i you feel like there are stakes in this movie when he you know uh, uh pays his life savings um to uh, to get Brad Pitt to to uh, affect the blackout that allows the operation that gets uh, Brad Pitt out of Chinese prison, right? Like there, you know, these these movies can be sort of very slick, and uh, you know, one of the when when you talked about um, when you all talked about uh, the most recent Bourne movie without having seen it, you got the sense that that movie might have had a stakes problem, right? Like n- n- no one really cares about Jeremy Renner. Um, uh, at least that was the, the sense that I was getting. But you really care about all these people. I don't know. It, it, it was a really great uh, sort of achievement in storytelling. Great, great. I'll use that word too for that. Uh, for that. Was uh, it too? Is it too pedestrian of a compliment to for a movie about trains or about Robert Redford? No, <laughs> I that, guess uh, I, I. I don't mean to be a snob. I guess when I think of like great. Movies, I think of like I I don't know Citizen Kane is a great. Oh, movie. you mean great? <laughs> so there's three forms. There's great, great, and great, which all are three different things. <laughs> great movies are great. It's a good time. You feel good when you see them. You're satisfied. Everything's good. Yeah. Great movies have like a vastness and a gravity, right? And great movies have some sort of vitamin fortification. They're covered in powdered sugar. <laughs> Uh, oh, hey, um, so I've just returned from uh, a trip through Europe, a trip through the UK. Not that we're done with Tony Scott, but I, I just want to say, if any
anyone wants to do to run a racket, if you want to like just make a mint in the UK, what you should do is take American breakfast cereals and load your suitcase up with like jumbo size American breakfast cereals and no clothes and nothing else. Just take a whole trunk of Lucky Charms and Frosted Flakes and whatnot. Uh, to England, and um, they sell them in stores there, but they sell them for like twelve pounds, fifteen pounds, depending on the size wow. of the package, which is you know twenty five dollars, right? And uh, uh, so you really could make a mint just illegally importing American breakfast cereal into the United Kingdom. Uh, pro- uh, that's a pro Matt, tip. I'll do you one better, even proer tip, right? <laughs> you can replace the bags on the on the inside with the cheaper, um, like store brand, Costco brand, uh, breakfast imitation oh. breakfast cereals, right? Not Frosted Flakes, but Frosty Flakes, for oh. example. <laughs> Take those over and sell those at the at the markup price. Eh? I'm eh? I'm sensing a Walt Junior spinoff show from Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, why would I do that? I'm a, I am a an international criminal with honor. You know that like, <laughs> I wouldn't sell I wouldn't sell a second rate product. But I mean, I suppose you'd have to go directly to the factory and get those chipboard boxes, right? Like, uh, yeah, because if you could get the boxes uh, separately, if you could get the boxes without actually having to shell out for real frosted flakes um, in the store, uh, it would make even more financial sense because I'm not going to eat that many frosted flakes. You know, just from a from a business plan perspective, it <laughs> seems like the labor necessary to replace the real frosted flakes with generic frosted flakes and yep. reseal the packages yep, yep. would cost more than the difference in price between the regular frosted flakes and the uh, the generic frosted flakes. No, no, you, Pete, just... you make you make it up in volume. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh, before we leave Tony, uh, before we leave Tony Scott, um, we should talk about Top Gun, I guess, because the, you know that's the uh, this, the what is there another sort of indelible contribution to to cinema that that he's made? I mean, Unstoppable, yeah, uh, that's a great movie. But the um, is there another in- contribution as indelible as Top Gun that he's made? I, I you know I don't think so. Um, Top Gun, a movie uh, that Jay Hoberman in his review for the Village Voice in '86 referred to as "Phallus in Wonderland." Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can be my wingman anytime. Uh, no, no, you can be my wingman anytime. A, a movie whose homosexual subtext is so explicit that uh, even the female love interest is named Charlie. Uh, <laughs> right uh what uh you know i don't know what, I mean, uh, what else is there oh, to say about it take it away Pete. Oh, okay so so what i was gonna say is that i mean we're, we're sort of mocking the thing right we're sort of mocking the thing uh one thing i want to say that kind of puts top gun in a little bit of special perspective is that the movie that he made before top gun is the 1983 film the hunger with david bowie as a vampire uh so and susan sarandon and uh catherine deneuve um all as uh sort of in this sort of sexy vampire kind of it's it's a really highly stylized and pretty pretty uh interesting film and if you consider top gun and the hunger in like juxtaposition because the hunger is like not only sort of overtly in the sense of it being obvious but overtly in the sense of it being kind of self-identified as a movie about kind of sexuality and forbidden sexuality and sexual identity and the social threat of sexual identity right in a way that sort of lives on the fringes right it kind of lives it's about you know this sort of david bowie is this huge presence in the movie and uh there's sort of a fringe sexuality and androgyny associated with this hunger right and so uh top gun is these is coming right after it is like aggressively homoerotic in a way that is also very aggressively kind of heteronormative right and so yeah. it takes a lot of the same things that are happening in the hunger but instead of locating them among these monsters right who are on the fringe of society these vampires who are sort of um kind of this sub- not necessarily the fringe of society in terms of being outcast but they are uh, not human you know they are threats to humanity they are like creatures of the night it puts them right smack dab in the middle of like um, the american power discourse right and, and so i think it's kind of a really clever way of progressing 
from the one piece to the other piece. And I would be really curious to watch them right after the other and to see the influences back and forth. Because I feel like there's probably a lot of sophistication in their interrelation. And it also makes the homoeroticism of Top Gun seem less... Um, like subliminal to Tony Scott himself, huh. right? Like there's a suspicion. I think people talk about the homoeroticism of Top Gun as sort of an indictment of it a lot of the time, despite themselves, right? And they say like, "Well, Top Gun, oh, that movie has the volleyball scene," and it's like it's almost like they tried to make an army movie, but the idea of making an army movie is so gay that they couldn't help but make a gay army movie, right? And it's like, no. Tony Scott has a history of making movies that explore the like sort of the fringes and the sort of suppressed hungers and and the sort of strange sexual identity and symbolism of humanity. I doubt that any of it was accidental. Sure. At least in terms of putting the images on the screen. And so, you know, legitimize considering Top Gun as a homoerotic movie. And I mean the the opening sequence of it, you know, with the powerful jets, right? Like I don't think there's I don't think there's a better personification of machines in American cinema than the opening scene of Top Gun, where mm. these sort of like hulking, very sexually filmed jets are taking off and landing from the aircraft carrier. Oh yeah, uh, can I can I tell a story of something a, a teacher of mine did in school that was um totally inappropriate we uh in we had homeroom only once a week because it was sort of useless the way our school was organized and so my uh homeroom teacher was the film teacher because it was an artsy school and we had a film department and with multiple teachers in it and so uh one of these was my homeroom teacher and so we um watched movies you know for the 10 or 15 minutes of our once a week homeroom period and so we watched top gun in uh in 10 minute chunks 15 minute chunks <laughs> then we then we watched apocalypse now in 10 minute chunks which is not the way to watch apocalypse now uh let me tell you <laughs> but um so we watched Top Gun, and the first time we did it, the first time uh, a plane entered the frame kind of slowly because the camera was moving along with the plane, flying through the air from the left, you know, penetrating right into the frame, uh, the, the teacher paused it with this big plane sticking, jutting proudly out <laughs> from the side of the plane, looked at the, the 15-year-olds assembled in the room, and I said, said, I dare any of you to tell me that that is not a giant erect penis uh, on, <laughs> on the screen. And we were like, ooh, subversive. And then we, you know... <laughs> you were like crazy. And from an academic standpoint, you were like, oh, wow, look at him shatter the norms. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, no, there, there's no, uh, no. I mean, I think he's he's on top of it. But why? Yeah, why? Why do people talk about the 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 homoerotic subtext or text or kind of alternate text or maybe intertext of of uh, of Top Gun as as sort of an indictment of Top Gun? I mean, I think that there's I think that there's a um, the, right there's a sense that the film is is. Uh, well, it's what you said. It, it has to do with, with heteronormativity and the relationship of heteronormativity and homoeroticism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of like these are men that are doing this men role. And also it's about – I mean it's also is about the political situation, right, and the sort of uh, – this idea of Vietnam as an emasculation and uh, the, the sort of 80s kind of Reagan-era renewal of Cold War mythos as like a remasculinization after the emasculine. It's, like, it's basically like the better Rambo 2. Right? Like, it's, it's like, you know, we get to win this time, right? Except, of course, we've had it written even on the site, I think, right, about how like the event in Top Gun is that actually ends the movie is entirely implausible from an international relations standpoint or ends like terribly for everyone concerned. But at any rate... Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think that, that, that that's, that's kind of what it's about, right? It's about like, and, so you're saying why do people talk? Why do people talk disparagingly about Top Gun? I think it's because of the political role that uh, patriotism plays in the contemporary political climate, right? uh -huh. which is very different than the role it played in 1983. Yeah, although it, it's hard to say exactly. But like right now, patriotism is very strongly aligned in a coalition that has a high priority of uh, limiting. And uh, restricting by law and, and also by social pressure the role of, uh, you know, gay males in the country, right? Sure. Like, you know, making sure that they, you know, don't get to get married and, and that, you know, they don't get to be recognized. And the thing that they're doing contains to, continues to be kind of treated as a disease and bad and something that needs to be converted or cured. Um, 
then these people are also very uh, very gung-ho about the country because there's a perception that um, the forces in the world that are globalizing and kind of integrating and trying to help each other, uh, they're all part and parcel of some sort of conspiracy to undermine this way of life, right? Like this idea, which is similar to the Cold War but not really the same, yeah. right? Because in the Cold War, there's this idea that there's the other that's the communists, Right, and they're the ones who are going to do it. The, the Russians are going to be the ones that it's bi- it's dipolar, bipolar, right? Like there's they're dipolar. There's two poles, right? And um, whereas now it's like there's one, there's like a castle being besieged from all sides, right? And so like in Top Gun, if there were a, a pilot who was a little bit effeminate, if he fights the Russians, you still like him because he fights the Russians. You know what I mean? Like, um, uh, gosh, a scene that rem- that rem- this reminds me of is from The Rocketeer. Which is a little bit later on, but I think it's the scene that really encapsulates this idea when uh, the ro- the Nazis come to take the rocket pack, and the mafia takes out their machine guns and starts or their Tommy guns and starts shooting the Nazis alongside the FBI, and they like look at each other and it's like awkward, right? Because <laughs> it's like it's like oh man, you're shooting at the at the Nazis too, and and the and I think the 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 the, uh, the mobster says something like you know I may be a criminal and a think, but I'm an American, you know what I mean? Um, and there was this idea of patriotism as something that was a big tent that the world would get under to fight off this evil that was the communists, as opposed to this idea that patriotism is a fortress that's being defended against a kind of decay and erosion from all sides. Right. Um, And in that sense, sexual morality in the sense of, uh, you know, heterosexuality in particular was not so closely aligned with the military. You know what I mean? Like, because it wasn't... um, Neither the capitalists nor the communists are particularly sexually interesting people. Like... Credos, right? So it's not. It's 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 a little bit different. It was yeah. it was um yeah. There, so well, anyway, so I have more to say about this, but I think I, I but I think Mark wants to get in. On oh, the sure, sure, sure. Of course, of course. Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm not going to try to to keep going on the on the topic of the you know the uh, homosexual uh, homosexual undertones of this movie because I think Pete, you really took this topic of, of uh, this topic and spike that volleyball really hard <laughs> down. And I'm not going to try to go in there and go for a dig, you know, I know we're all sweaty right now. Yeah, I know. Even so. though, you know, my, my body is so well toned that I could really just dive in there in slow motion and make oh, that dig. Yeah. Mark, Mark, you can ride my, you can, you can ride my tail anytime. <laughs> oh, I thank you, Matt. Okay. So the other thing that people disparage Top Gun about, I think, is the fact that it sort of uh, was the harbinger of a, the modern era of the really mindless uh, blockbuster action movie, right? Because mm-hmm. um, it's a Bruckheimer film as well. That's the part of it that's a Jerry Bruckheimer mm-hmm. movie. Whereas we're talking about the part of it that's a Tony Scott movie, but it's also a Jerry Bruckheimer movie, which means it's like a big budget action movie. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you could argue that or not, but, but people forget about this movie it is remarkable in its restraint of action um i've seen it uh, recently uh for the last two years memorial day weekend uh, they do this great screening of it on the deck of the uss intrepid uh-huh. um uh, uh outdoor screening uh, it's, you know amongst the the different uh, you know warplanes including f-14 tomcats uh, it's, it's fantastic stuff um but uh, uh, upon these recent viewings of it i realized there are no explosions in this movie until spoiler alert the very end where they actually finally finally get to shoot down some real jets no yeah. explosions like there is no sort of like hostile exchange of guns or missiles or anything like that until very very late into the movie uh, and, and to think uh, to imagine uh, a movie of that sort, your sort of military action movie, um, without any explosions for the first, you know, not even like a thirty minutes, but like fifteen or five minutes, just like inconceivable now. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think Top Gun deserves a lot of credit for it actually being uh, restrained and cerebral and like very sort of you know thoughtful about uh, how it represents action, how it represents kinetic energy of sorts on on the screen well sure be a beat on the volleyball court or in the sky well yeah that uh, that's exactly what i was about that's exactly what i was about to say right there's there's like a sort of line drawn between the like the exuberant motion and the like the the sort of um admirable kinetic potential of the body on the uh on the volleyball court um the uh the motorcycle right Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. Uh, and the the airplane in the the airplane in the sky, um, yeah. Th- that these things and it's very there's like a real there's a sense of of reality to it. I mean, there's a sense that these things kind of have mass, right? And mm-hmm. I I actually mean that literally. Like watching them, they don't have the kind of slightly unreal quality that that say like a lot of the movie B- Battleship had. 
Where you can Tokyo drift in the USS Missouri, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Like, you just don't get the sense. And, and it's funny because that movie should have had it because that was the whole, the whole point of it is that we're, we're going to bring this old, heavy, you know, uh, sort of less maneuverable whatever ship out of, mm-hmm. out of mothballs. Um, and that, like, you know, a good old American steel, right, is, is what's going to save, save the world. Um, it should have had it, and yet it, it, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of ephemeral. It was kind of like poof, you know, uh, yeah. a little poofy. And yet the the, um, you know, I don't know something about something about those planes is uh, is really. Uh, I don't know. It's it's really good. I mean, there's there's a sense that like uh, I guess when when Top Gun was taught to me in film classes, it, a big deal was made of the idea that Tony Scott had had directed commercials early in his career, which I, I would, a lot of directors direct commercials uh, early in their career. But but he you know he was shooting these things as sort of objects of desire, as sort of you know what I mean, as sort mm-hmm. of like making making these things, these bodies, these machines. Um, Desirable uh, to, the, to and he uh, he said here's an unattributed or a uh, unsourced quote from Tony uh, Tony Scott uh, that's on his IMDb trivia page. Um, he says that uh, I see these pilots as rock and roll stars. I see I see deep blue skies and silver steel. I hear the rock music and smell the jet jet fuel. I love shooting real things uh, in the real world. And that's uh, yeah. you know that's, that ties into the, what we were talking about earlier about the subways and in uh, taking Pelham one two three yeah and, mm-hmm. and I, so let's I mean maybe let's leave him with that with that tribute you know um, uh, it was sad to lose him uh, but he was a man who loved shooting real things in the real world. All right. Well, um, moving from from the real world to uh, other real worlds. Hey, guys, we're on Mars. <laughs> really? Oh, I thought you were talking about what I was talking about before the podcast, <laughs> which was a very a much lesser kind of, of achievement. Why don't we talk about what you want to talk about us being on Mars from your perspective or us being on Mars from my perspective first? <laughs> I wouldn't have much to say, so why don't I talk about my visit to Mars, and then you can talk about your visit to Mars, okay? Right. Yeah, okay, All right. good. No, I, I, I meant that NASA had, had landed oh, on Mars, okay. but, but we, can, uh, we, can, we can bracket that. We can, we can punt that to the end of the show if you, if you want to move on to the, to the other. Uh, oh, I don't, have a, I don't have a ton to say about this. I'll just, I'll just quickly say that I really, and I said this on Twitter, too, I really think that iTunes should have a warning window that pops up that says, you're about to download the American version of a British show. Are you sure you want to continue? Because <laughs> uh, I spent uh, something like $35 for the first season of the American version of Life on Mars, uh, which is not very good uh i mean it's not terrible but like the british show life on mars is is kind of really highly regarded right? and it's it's uh it spawned a spinoff and and people really like it now the, Pete, the Pete, Pete, yeah. is it great great or great <laughs> my sense is that the british show is great and the american show is great because <laughs> <laughs> it's it's vitamin fortified yeah, exactly. Because the first thing is, it's like, oh, it's that chick from the Cosby Show is in this. <laughs> like, oh, it's you know, like, oh, wow. Because it's about it's about a cop who is listening to Life on Mars by David Bowie on the on his car uh, radio or iPod or whatever when he gets in an accident and uh, he wakes up in 1973. Uh, and he's also still a cop, and uh, it's like, wow, why am I in 1973? And David Bowie's Life on Mars is like still playing, right? And he has to investigate crimes in 1973 using his uh, 2012 or whatever other year it was uh, cop skills, which nobody there has. And of course, it's all aggressively misogynistic, and it's a totally different culture, and he's a fish out of water and all that stuff. And the American version, uh, while cute, is very much a procedural, and they treat it as sort of like a twist on a procedural. Uh, and from what I hear, the British version version is more interesting in terms of how it presents the cultural differences and uh, just the sort of general context of the premise. And, and, it, yeah. and so there you are. There you are on iTunes. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and, and what did they indicate that it was the American version or was it like the poster for no. the British version or 
No, I mean, there's a picture of Harvey Keitel. I should have figured it out. Like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Harvey Keitel was in the British version, but it was late. I was tired, and I just wanted to watch some... I was like, hey, you know what? Breaking Bad episodes aren't coming out that fast. I just got rid of my extended cable. Like, I want to I get a show that I really want to get into, and I want to buy it and watch the whole thing. So I have Netflix. I use iTunes uh, and uh, for whatever reason, which may stop happening if things like this continue. But yeah, and so like whatever. I mean, I don't recognize who the lead actor is. I mean, supposedly the British one is some guy from Doctor Who, and I was like, that guy looks like he could have been in Doctor Who. Okay, you know, like Har- Harvey <laughs> so, Keitel. Uh, no, the other the Harvey Keitel is not the star. Wasn't it? Wasn't uh, it Michael Imperioli, uh, Christopher from The Sopranos? Who, who he's was... also in. He's not the star either, oh, and he okay. looks. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so he, yeah, I mean, yeah. But, He's got a big mustache. And you, big mustache, and but uh, other than that, looks like Christopher from The Sopranos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the big thing about the American one is I don't think American sensibilities can really tolerate actually making the authentically making the show as if things were happening in 1973. There's just a whole lot of conversation that makes things very pat and clear what the morals of the people making the show are, right? It would be like, oh, I know that you're just a women's police corps person, but you should be a real cop, and someday you will be, because that's the way things are going to be when the world isn't crazy like it is in the past, you know, and it's just like, you know, it's, why don't don't you just show the characters dealing with the situation that they have to deal with and stop apologizing for it, right? Because that's the premise of the show. Right, is that there's supposed to be some sort of valuable dramatic interaction that takes place in this setting. You're not just putting it there in order to like give people funky shirts and jackets and then keep apologizing for things, right. which is actually why I put it there. But yeah, well, so. well, yeah. I guess I mean I guess so. That's I. It's about. It's also like the sexism in Mad Men. I I always wonder if there's something like if there's kind of SVU syndrome. Um, I. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm always the guy ragging on the, the like, hyper-violent sort of sex crimes procedurals. Like, uh, I think part of the – and, I, you know, I, I apologize because I've said this uh, a lot on this show. But uh, if you have not been listening to the Overthinking It podcast for all three years, um, I, I, I think part of the, you know, the pleasure that we get out of shows like that um, is a little bit perverse in that – uh, not that it's bad. It's it's just that it's a little bit perverse. In that it's kind of like it's kind of like the going into the woods in a Shakespeare, uh, in a Shakespeare comedy. Like you can see all kinds of bad things happen, um, and kind of absolve yourself from from responsibility of of uh, you know I don't know watching that kid get kidnapped and sort of threatened right or like watching that that cheerleader get sexually assaulted and I, I wonder if the sexism in this show isn't kind of like a, a safe way of sort of indulging right uh, indulging a kind of retrograde wish for for sexism from you know from like a male audience right. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. I think that people people want to see it, right? And they, so they're looking for a context in which to see it, where they're not going to be socially judged for it. And the way that they they look for this is they try to oh, it's it's this. I mean, it's kind of the it's the other way. It's the other direction of the stuff that we're used to from science fiction. It's actually kind of funny because you know think about where, where was the first you know, interracial kiss on primetime television? Like it was on Star Trek. Right, like like science fiction has been on the cutting edge at many times of progressive thinking and of like because it gives you a frame of, of uh, gives you a framing within society to talk about issues that you might have difficulty otherwise talking about. Philip K. Dick talks about this a bunch, right? Like that he writes his books, his sci-fi books, because it would be difficult to take what he's talking about if he didn't add that sort of couching to it. But you can do it the other way. Like, you can make a sci-fi show, and this happens a lot. I'm sure Kevin Sorbo did a bunch of it in Andromeda, where it's like, you show stuff that people would otherwise not want to see, or that's regressive, right? And then you, uh, you frame it in sci-fi, and it becomes, makes it more difficult to judge, right? Like, uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Here I got one, Pete, for you. Um, uh, you can create a show that's, uh, that's about sort of a elite uh, oligarchy, uh, with, with special powers, uh, like let's say, like a, sort of a priesthood of sorts, um, mm-hmm. that there are chosen people and they get to save save the galaxy um, with retrograde politics. It's called Star Wars. Look at yeah, up. exactly. Yeah. This is like the Star Trek Star Wars like left right divide where you're you're shrouding yourself in the auspices of science fiction in order to uh, avoid judgment for your politics. And I think that that's something that this show. I don't know about the British version. Uh, the, the American version. Um, is trying like sets out to do it and then is just sort of constantly it's 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 acting basically like a guy who hates factory farms 
and always talks about factory farms, but like still just eats the regular meat from the supermarket. You know what I mean? It's like it's like oh, it's so bad that there's factory farms, isn't it? Oh, isn't it the worst? Like oh, there's a good sandwich. You know what I mean? Like it's it's uh it's it's guilty without being like productive. Um, but I'm ta- but I'm talking about it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's true. They talked about that exactly. But I think about it all the time. <laughs> that's the line. Yeah, I exactly. Feel, yeah, yeah, right. As though, yeah, as, you're, as though your guilt absolved you from, yeah. you know, uh, from the, the sort of consequences uh, of your actions. Yeah, but in also this case, it's like you, you connect your moral outrage uh, with the things that you're saying and not with the things that you're doing. Yeah. Right? Like. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, whatever. I mean, I don't want to impugn the show. It's pretty harmless. You know, it doesn't really feel that different from other procedurals. Uh, there's like, you know, like there's a scene where uh, the girl who lives next door brings him some marijuana lasagna, like marijuana laced lasagna. And he's like, I'm a cop. I can't eat this. You know, and it's like, it's like he really wouldn't try the lasagna. He doesn't have any food. Like, I guess he has some Chinese food. <laughs> but it's like, he's just like, hey, why? There are people watching. <laughs> there are people at home who are watching this television show, and they can't see me eat this marijuana-laced lasagna, so I'm going to leave it on the table, and it's never going to be explained whether I keep it for leftovers or not. So that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, but I mean, there's not too much to say about it. I haven't gotten too far in the show, just a couple episodes in. There's nothing particularly remarkable about the show, the American version. I don't think it turned any heads. Um, but I'm just I saying. Think that, it, I, mean, I don't that, think it lasted longer than, than one season. But, uh, you know, it's a great public service announcement for our audience that, that yeah, like, exactly. you know, be careful uh, to check whether you're buying the British or American versions of uh, television shows on iTunes. Exactly, exactly. And I imagine on other platforms as well. But there you go. So now, the, you the, said the, something about going to another planet. Yeah, Is the, that Mars, the, Mars, the Mars that I wanted to talk about, the life on Mars... <laughs> Is the, is the you know search for signs of like uh, you know fossilized water or something like that like or uh, signs of life on the actual planet of Mars because we have a rover there and it you know it seems like space yeah I know it's awesome right like and it seems like space is very front of mind with the uh, with the death um, of of Neil Armstrong uh, who accomplished great things and lived a lived a long full life and. Um, and uh, then, you know, NASA, the sort of big win for NASA of, of putting the rover on Mars, which is totally cool. Uh, I don't know that there's a lot to overthink here uh, other than, I mean, do you think that this is maybe like a, a resurgence of, of NASA in, in the popular culture? I mean, like the, the sort of cool factor? I'm not sure, but let me backtrack a little bit here, just because in, in the span of this calendar year, 2012, um, there's sort of, been, I think, three big stories um, about the space program in the popular imagination. And uh, the first one being the decommissioning of the space shuttle program and uh, the transportation of the space shuttles to various parts of the United States for, uh, for e- exhibition as part of museums, right? And uh, as the space shuttles were making the way across, uh, across the country to their new homes, uh, people were, I think, were lamenting the loss of the, of the shuttle program, um, in a lot of ways ignoring sort of like the, uh, NASA's plans for, um, uh, for replacing uh, the space shuttle program with other ways to send people up into space. But people were looking at that and thinking that there goes our former glory, right? We used to put, you know, have like, you know, what, four or five different space shuttles up in service. And it's, it seemed to be like this great thing that, uh, you know, America, great American achievement to have these uh, spaceships that we could shoot up into the sky and then bring back down and land like a plane. That was awesome. And we don't do that anymore. That's sad, right? So there was, there was that. And then, and then uh, we sort of came roaring back a little bit with, um, with uh, with the Mars rover, right? And so this is great, and we're celebrating it. And it's gotten a lot of attention. Um, but then now, uh, for, excuse the pun, where we brought a little bit back down to Earth with uh, the passing of Neil Armstrong, and again a reminder of our former glories, which uh, seem to be uh, all be all. Be- uh, of course, our former glories are all behind us, right? But our glories, our greatest achievements, are behind us and no longer looking forward. Mm. N- uh, name what? How many astronauts can you name? Right, like, what's the most recent astronaut that you can name? 
Gosh, Ooh. probably John Glenn, right? Because yeah. he went in like 1997. Sure. Okay. <laughs> you know, he's from the 60s. Uh, Christy McAuliffe from the Challenger Explosion. Yeah, that, that was the one I was. That yeah. was the one I was thinking of as the most. Yeah. yeah, as the most recent, right? Like it seems that like the sense of the sense actually that Tony Scott had talked about is these guys because a lot of these guys came out of were like pilots, were like test pilots or something, right? Like mm-hmm. and flew the the cutting edge stuff uh, uh, air, aircraft and then flew the cutting edge spacecraft, right? Like uh, the sense of them is. As, as rock stars and like you know the right stuff and and all this um we we don't seem to have that uh, as much anymore right like uh, as much as we do with with buzz aldrin and uh neil armstrong and so on yeah i mean i think i i think you're dead on connecting it to top gun because i think one of the things that top gun really does is it, is it connects the presence of the person, the power of the machine, the kind of power of the autonomic and subconscious functions, all the different things that go on in a person's body, yeah. right? Sort of like propels that person forward through life. Um, it, it connects all these experiences and this sort of idea of identity and this idea of power. They all come together in Tom Cruise in the fighter jet, in the Tomcat, right? Yeah. The Tomcat, which is, you know, maybe a coincidence, probably, but maybe not. Um, and I think that now when they did the they did interview there's there's been some interviews with the people who are kind of remotely controlling uh, curiosity and one of them had a mohawk right and that was kind of a little bit of a news thing but that's such a lower order right like I, I want to show NASA's public relations people Top Gun right yeah like let's sit them down and let's show, I mean you can show them the right stuff but I feel like Top Gun kind of gets the point across closer and it's like because I feel like the real risk for NASA here isn't that they lose all support. Right, but that they they really ghettoize themselves to a very small part of the political pie. Yeah. Right. They're like because they're like, well, the real benefit of what we're getting is science, right? And it's like, and then there's this like, well, there's a lot of people who actually don't care about science. It's like, well, those people are idiots, right? And it's like, well, that's not productive because you need their support and tax money to run your spaceship program, right? So it's like one of the cool things about uh, the 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 big days of NASA. You know, I mean, I'd say up to and including Challenger. Right, like, uh, and then you know, to an extent, the the sort of brief renaissance it had after the fact, but like, pretty much, you know, we're talking some windows from between the late '60s and the '80s. Like, you know, there is this, there is this human element, and people can get behind it. You know, like people who are all about jingoism in the military can get behind the space program. People who are all about science can get behind the space program. Educators get behind the space program. Tech nuts get behind the space program. Like macho people like get behind the space program. You know, like it can be a, an outlet for feminist stuff too. You know, Sally Ride is a big deal. Christine McAuliffe was a big deal. Like adding a human identity to this achievement and not just as a presence that sort of dances around it, but who's actually doing it. You have so many more opportunities to get people on board with what you're doing because there are so many things that you're doing other than just like shooting a laser at a rock and measuring what happens. You know what I mean? Like there's just so much that's happening from a narrative and, and, and now of course you're spending billions of dollars doing it so you really need to be focusing on tangible benefits but i don't know i think it might be a sign of our fragmentation right and the sort of you know the the way that our society has become so multipolar right that there will be a small niche that will support nasa and uh it will be fighting a constant war against the pieces that would rather spend that money on other things and not that that changes the the funding state of affairs that fundamentally but it it feels different culturally than when there were astronauts actually going up there you know what i mean and i'm sure there's going to be more manned spaceflight in the future i know that they're trying to develop a next generation platform and all that stuff but it's hard to get as excited about curiosity as i would be about an actual person yeah, doing something notable. I think one of the big mistakes in the latter days of the space program is it never really it wasn't really clear what they were doing up there. Right, like in, in the man Sure, space yeah, program. International Space Station, what's that like? Yeah. I mean I mean the idea that the idea that there are there is this mess of it's something that doesn't really kind of penetrate the the popular imagination that like there is this mess of satellites uh floating above us that make possible, you know, a lot of the communications stuff that that we do like a lot of the technology that happens on earth depends on this global network of of all kinds of satellites uh also um 
Tony Scott's movie Spy Game, right, depends on uh, imaging from uh, <laughs> from several satellites. Uh, spy satellites have been the, the thing. So without satellites, our movies would be less awesome. But like putting another satellite up, I mean, like it's 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 interesting. Like there's um, there's the human element, and there's also the sense of like the first time, right? That uh, you know, this is the first time we're we're walking on the moon. This is the first time we're I, I don't know sending a dog into space or something like that. This is yeah. the, you know the first time we're landing successfully after having gone up there. You know, um, it's uh, what are the what are the new firsts? And you know, going to uh, going to Mars, even if it wasn't manned, like going to Mars is a, a good one to uh, uh, going to Mars is a good one to um, to have, I guess. I mean, the yeah. other, other equivalent that's coming to mind is James Cameron's deep dive into the, the depths of the ocean, right? If we're talking about finding new frontiers, right? To use that cliche phrase when we're talking about space travel, you know, space being the final frontier. Um, uh, there, there aren't a lot of new places to go anymore. You know, we, we, made, we went to the moon. And uh, to get anywhere really, truly new beyond that, you know, to get to Mars uh, is, is going to be uh, very difficult to do. Um, and, and so one of the things, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, you know, vis-a-vis the, the space program and its effect on popular culture, is that um, you know, in this time of exploration, um, you know, after you know Columbus set sail, and you know, up and through the Industrial Revolution and and, and the Space Age, um, you know, our fiction, right, you know, has constantly been looking outward, exploring, exploring, imagining, imagining worlds beyond ours. Um, and now that we seemingly for now have like uh, sort of hit a limit of sorts, um, are we no longer looking outward with our imaginative science fiction? Or are we now starting to look inward? Um, things like, uh, I don't know, like Michael, Michael Crichton novels and DNA and things like that are, are, are coming to mind or, you know, fiction about uh, the virtual world that also comes to mind. I mean, that's a gross oversimplification, but um, and I'm putting it out there for, uh, for discussion. Yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, it's tough because you can't just dismantle the space program to go focus on something else because there's so much capital tied into it. You lose so much value by doing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's one thing to say is, well, the moon seemed impossible at some point too, right? So other things are yeah. probably going to seem impossible. One thing that comes to mind is um, I kind of chuckle because I'm thinking like all the people who think that the moon landing was staged, right? Mm. Like maybe there's some truth to that because there was something – there's something movie-like and cinematic about the way that the moon landing works as a narrative, right? And so whatever it is that you need to be doing that's getting people excited, whatever first it is, or there has to be something – like movies by their nature don't have to be tent poles. They just figured out that that was the way they could afford to pay for them. Right, like it didn't used to have these movies that were big budget blockbuster things that everybody cared about, but it was a way of figuring out – of like getting people to support them and uh, – in this sense, with science and with, with space exploration specifically, like you need to get people excited about it. And they've been trying real hard with Curiosity. I'm sure they spent a ton on the marketing for it. Um, they're really trying to get that message out there. I think they've done a pretty good job with it. Um, but it definitely, like, like I mean, take a, space, take a space mission and pitch it to me like a movie. You know, like, okay, we're going send, send, to send a guy into space. He's going to orbit the world once, and then he's going to crash into the ocean. Uh, he's going to be totally alone and out of contact for 12 hours, and then we're going to retrieve him from the Pacific. That's kind of exciting. Like, we're going to send a dog up, and it's probably going to die. And that's kind of – that's sad. But that's kind of, uh, and it's like we're going to send some people up to the International Space Station to study plant growth. You know, like, and it's like, eh, you know, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't jive with me. So I agree with you. It's like um, that sense of firstness. I mean – if we determine that there isn't a good frontier externally that we can focus on, then that cultural energy could be applied to internal frontiers. Um, but it's a question of who's directing that cultural energy, how it's being communicated, and what stories are being told with it. Uh-huh. Um, you know what I mean? So I think there's a lot of organizations that skimp a little bit on the storytelling. Sure. Because uh, they don't think it's important, and it really is. You know what doesn't um, skimp uh, at all on the storytelling is the 1987 film Inner Space. about the interior frontier in which dennis quaid is uh in a in a capsule uh right that's i'm thinking the right movie aren't i that's yeah yeah martin short yeah yeah shrunk down to yeah shrunk down to the the uh microscopic size and injected into to uh martin short yeah no exactly i feel like that's the next step 
<laughs> well, I mean, there's a problem because doing it with robots is cheaper and easier and less risky than doing it with people. But it's going to be harder to maintain the political support if you just use robots. Yeah. So, and that's just a, that's a problem. And it's like one of the other problems is that the people who are running NASA are really, really smart. And thus, it's hard for them to con- convince themselves that the grossly more, the grossly less efficient and more dangerous option is the better option right. because it's the one that's going to help them keep their jobs. Sure, it doesn't. You know? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't jive. I mean, it doesn't jive on any level except the the um, uh, the the sort of marketing one. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 interesting, isn't it? That like. Um, we, you all, it sort of needs to have an element of risk, I guess, yeah. in order to yeah. be. But, I mean, at the risk of being trite, let me quote President Kennedy. You know, we choose to go to the moon and do the other thing, uh, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Right? <laughs> uh, th- th- there's a lot of resonance to that. You know, that, and uh, it, it seems like a, um, in some ways we are missing uh, that degree of inspiration of, uh, of men and women. Yeah, you know, flesh, flesh and blood, uh, doing the dangerous, doing the impossible, um, and, and coming back to live and, and tell us about it. And the point, I mean, the point I wanted to make in response to something Pete said earlier was that, like, um, it, it strikes me that, like, if there are people, if there are people up there, there's there's room for heroism. There's a potential for it. If it's just machines doing it, it's infrastructure. You know what I mean? It's it's administration. It's bureaucracy. It's computer programming, right? And and that's um, uh, it's hard to make the argument that 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 should be fun- that infrastructure should be funded, and a lot easier to sort of make the sentimental argument that that heroism should be funded, right? Yeah. You know, you know what it makes me think of is it makes me think of all those terrible movies where somebody enters a virtual reality and they have like an avatar that looks exactly like them and like everything that they do. It's like, oh, I need to look up a file. And it's like, there's a filing cabinet and your avatar has to open the filing cabinet, right? And it's like um, Disclosure is one of the big ones of this for me, where they make a user interface for a virtual reality system that is just so ridiculously overly, uh, overly like complex and like overly you know, narrativized it just so many bells and whistles beyond what would be necessary to do the thing that you're doing. I mean, what if they, what if they, if, if, cause the, there are people, right. That are involved in what's going on with curiosity. There are people who are driving the thing. Sure. Um, but, but how can you show that to us in a way that is exciting, right? Is there a way, like, do you build a virtual reality chamber where a pilot can pilot curiosity by standing in it via motion sensors, right? right? And do you, like, composite an image of that? So, like, you know, do you have a place where people can go and, like, um, I mean, maybe, maybe you put a probe on Mars – that has cameras that go in all directions and you set up a place in a museum where you can go in and look around and like see what's going on on Mars at that moment. You know what I mean? Wouldn't that be cool? You know, like put yourself there. It would really, it would really make it a little bit more real that we have a presence there. Um, how do you put a human are, body there? Are, are you saying that you want to get your ass to Mars? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I've been hurt before, Mark. I'm not going down that road again. I thought Total Recall was coming back, and it wasn't. I was injured. I'm just trying to figure out how you put a person up there, because there are people up there. How you make it more intuitive, the idea that there are human hands that are guiding this mission. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, you know what, exactly. it, you know what it, it sort of uh, makes me think of? It makes me think of... Um, drone unmanned drone warfare right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like another another aspect in which there is this this sort of seemingly impersonal technology but there are a lot of people uh sort of involved in it right uh, yeah and just again going back to the tony scott thing uh, like there were uh, plentiful rumors that he was going to make a top gun sequel that was not going to be about fighter pilots it was going to be about unmanned drones and the people oh, on the ground man. who were like you know working the joystick, uh, uh, piling the drone around and firing hell- hellfire missiles at, uh, at at terrorists. You know, I, I feel th- like that was awesome. I, I feel like that would have really explained a lot of what we're talking about. <laughs> I think he, he would have been able to do it anyway. Sorry, Matt. Highway to the business park in Mesa, Arizona. The business park <laughs> in Mesa, Arizona. Da- the danger drone. Hi, <laughs> danger drone. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's the drop. <laughs> <laughs> the dubstep song that's my impression of a dubstep song <laughs> uh yeah that that is a better joke than than mine though i was trying to get at the, at the fact that you know i don't know it just doesn't seem as exciting if you're sitting in mesa arizona right like in a you know windowless uh facility and um 
Anyway, you know yeah, what? Look, you, know, look, look. you know what? Uh, th- there was a show that actually had a uh, a TV show that had a uh, a thing of the week, a, a legal case of the week about uh, a drone pilot. And it was it's actually a show that's that's really sort of asked a lot of interesting questions about modern life and kind of tried to address. Um, you know things like the inter- uh, things like implications of of uh, networking and inter- implications of the internet and technology and things like this. And that show is is uh, CBS is the Good Wife, um, which is not a great show. It is it is neither uh, it is neither a great great or great show, <laughs> but it is a pretty damn it is a pretty damn good show that that at least is sort of like looking to. Uh, looking to um, ask or, or do some things of the week that are that are pretty interesting. I saw this article and I tweeted it out on the Overthinking at Twitter uh, on io9 that was like how to you know uh, d- ten ways ten surprising new how to ten surprising new ways um, to evaluate a TV pilot and wh- one of them was. Uh, uh, how interesting is the thing of the week on this show really going to be, right? And, um, and uh, you know, I don't know. I think good shows take the time to really try to do imaginative things of the week. And, and Good Wife did one about a, a drone pilot uh, who, who blew something up inappropriately, right? And, like, was being tried in... in there was a court-martial. Uh, uh, was court-martialed. And, and so, like, uh, you know, I'm, that's interesting. I mean, I guess that puts a, a, a human face on it. Like, there, there is a human operator, and I guess that person could blow up some stuff that is not supposed to be blowed up right mm-hmm. yeah i mean there's got to be some other angle like there's got to have been some other medium or story or theme or something that could be used to tie together well because if you look at the tony scott films i know that we i know that we we, we sort of we put not, yeah, 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 we, we really didn't intend to make this the tony scott podcast but it's you know it's interesting once you open up the subject it you connect it to everything that's a yeah, sign but, of, a, of a good conspiracy theorist or overthinker <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like a lot of his movies involve, you know, not just one story, but two stories, right? That are being told at the same time and are and are talking to each other. This is not outlandish for movies, right? But like, you know, uh, you know, Crimson Tide is a story about, uh, um, you know, submarine warfare, but it's also very much a character study about these two men: this older white man and this younger black man who have a relationship and have power difficulties, right? And like that's kind of a story, like you know, Unstoppable is also about kind of like it's a fish underwater friendship story, but it's also explaining trains, right? Like, and it's like, there's nothing, you know, I, I don't know about Pelham 1, 2, 3, but Man on Fire, right? You know, the relationship between the, the dude and the little girl is, is, is part of, it's set against, I think the big, the big difference between this and sort of like a Steven Seagal movie where it's like a special forces Green Beret's son has been kidnapped and he needs to rescue him in Alaska. And it's like, happens to be in Alaska, is um, that both the setting and the human action are important to what the movie is trying to do. And they are related in a way that is, I would almost say harmonic tense. There's a, there's, there's not a unity to it. The unity to it only exists when you watch the movie, right? Like the, in, in these, in these movies, the unity between sort of like being a PI and being a professional football player in the last boy scout doesn't exist unless you're, unless you're watching the last boy scout and the art object pulls it together to sort of go new critic on it a little bit. Right. And it's like, um, Oh, I suddenly understand, you know, this better because the story of the people involved and the sort of meticulous attention to detail and the filming of the real things involved, they feed each other my understanding of each other. So I don't feel like I know what Tony Scott would have done with this drone movie because I don't know the other story that he would have told alongside it. Like it might have been Denzel Washington and Jamie Foxx, right? Like it might have been, you know, uh, freaking like, you know, Jackie Chan and, and an old lady in a wheelchair. You know, like I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's very unlikely, but I don't know what other story he would use to frame and humanize and create tension with and eventually create kind of a unity with, um, with that kind of story. Because to me, a drone pilot seems very alienating and also very like morally and ethically problematic and a difficult thing to do as a Top Gun sequel where the idea is that they are rock stars, right? You know what I mean? Like there's, there's some sort of bridge that needs to be made between those things. Yeah. I don't know. How's it going to end, John? I don't know. That's not Tony Scott. That movie's not near. 
<laughs> and then he's not nearly good enough to be Tony Scott. Uh-huh. Oh man. Well, and also, uh, that, that not only is that a John Carter quote, but that is a John Carter Carter quote from the trailer that didn't wind up in the final cut of the movie. I will also did I, not, did I say John Carter? John um John, John, Q. Q. John Q. Sorry. I will also point out that, <laughs> that would be a great movie. John Q of Mars. <laughs> It's like, come on, spaceman! I need to. I need. My son needs to get new kidneys, right? It's like, it's like we're riding our space monsters. And it's that's like, how. No. That's how you put a man on the on Mars. Exists with socialized medicine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I would also point out that the reason that a drone-based Top Gun sequel is not a slam dunk because they did it with Iron Eagle, basically, Louis uh-huh. uh, Gossett Jr. vehicle. I believe. I think it's Iron, Iron Eagle 3 uh, is about, like, virtual reality pilots, and it's a piece of garbage. Uh, that's not entirely fair. I'm sure a lot of people worked very hard on it, and those people have mothers, too. So I won't be mean about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it turned into more of a Tony Scott podcast than, than we wanted, but also uh, an awesome space program podcast. So uh, if you want to join the conversation, you can email us at podcastatoverthinkingit.com. You can call 203-285-6401. I can't believe, Pete, last week you said, call the number that no one ever calls uh, <laughs> people call the number all the time and i download their voicemails i just uh we just haven't oh you just share them with us yeah. oh okay yeah. gotcha <laughs> i keep them all for myself um, <laughs> my precious the, uh, uh. yeah 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 um there's there's i guess uh Oh, Imaz, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the um, the London meetup, but we can save that. Oh yeah, we can save that for next next week. It'll be uh, it'll be less timely, but no less fresh in my mind because it was awesome to meet up with uh, with some overthinkers. We had a group of nine actually, uh, r- making it rank up there in size with the uh, with the New York meetup. Um, it was nice, but uh, when when some of the awesome overthinkers uh, who showed up, uh, when I asked them what they wanted more from the the podcast one of them said more harvey firestein oh god <laughs> so i just want to remind you that the number is 203 285 6401 um yes. are you happy united kingdom are you happy now have you satisfied your continental ways or actually i guess united kingdom they're, is off, yeah, so, oh, yeah, they're off the continent yeah continental europe um yeah and i can i can tell you a little bit about my trip if you were interested next next time too uh two two months in europe a lot of a lot of interesting a lot of interesting stuff uh in europe a lot of history over there a lot of history on that uh on that continent um the uh not that there's not a lot of history everywhere but you know what is history the overthinking it podcast so visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve i'm back bitches up your edge and listen to her howling. No, 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 no. Begging for attention. Begging you to touch and go, go, go. Everybody, all the Harveys sing Highway to the Danger Zone. <laughs> Gotta take it right in. Guys, Oh, none of you, you gotta commit to the joke, man. We, I was gonna, there's like two more verses left. I'm too hard. I just you uh, take my breath away. Dun 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 dun. dun. <laughs>